Hello, this is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva, and I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Richard Legros. Dr. Legros is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Penn State University College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. His research and clinical practice are primarily focused on PCOS diagnosis, treatment, and also genetic and environmental causes. He established one of the first clinics devoted to the treatment of women with PCOS at MS Hershey Medical Center. And Dr. Legros is currently an investigator in an ongoing genome-wide association study in PCOS and is the lead investigator of the multi-center U.S. National Institute of Health, otherwise known as NIH, um, and those sponsored trials, Pregnancy and Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome 1 and 2. And he's also the head of the steering committee on several multi-center infertility trials currently underway in China, including PCOS ACT. It's a trial of Clomid and acupuncture, which sounds really interesting um, in women with PCOS. And he served as a member of multiple NIH study sections. So welcome, Dr. Legro. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Oh, great. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about the studies, especially as relate to um, lifestyle. And uh, we're wrapping up a uh, a large uh, preconception study in which we um, there were three treatment groups that uh, women with PCOS seeking fertility were randomized to. One was a oral contraceptive pill, which is kind of the control situation. Another was a uh, intense lifestyle intervention that consisted of um, increased physical activity up to 100 uh, minutes a week of exercise, uh, meal replacements, so these are fixed caloric uh, uh, meals, uh, and then a combination of either cybutramine, which was an appetite suppressant, and then when that was removed from the market, we switched to Orlistat, which is a um, drug that prevents uh, intestinal fat absorption. So that was the second arm. And the third arm was the combination of the birth control pill and the um, lifestyle intervention. And um, we're, as I say, we're wrapping up that study and, and following the last few pregnancies to completion because the primary goal was to see what would um, most likely result in, in uh, a live birth. Unfortunately, I don't have those data right now, but we have certainly looked at the data from our weight loss um, arms, and we were very successful in, in achieved. We had targeted a, a goal of 7% weight loss, and, and we achieved pretty much close to it, about 6.4% in the one arm, and I think it was 6.5% in the other arm. And I think that's good news because we we um, it's probably the first time that we've had a lifestyle study where we where we came that close to meeting our goal. And also, we had very low dropout throughout the study, so it was actually. We had less dropout in this. It was below 20% uh, than we've had in some of the medication studies we've done, which have not involved any lifestyle um, intervention. So I don't know, if Amy, if you want to ask any questions about that before I kind of go on to what else we've been doing. Yeah, so I was kind of interested in the actual, um, you know, the, the, the food and the type of diet that the women in the study were eating. Do you have any um, information about that? I know that... 
Um, we, we actually have extensive in, uh, information because we did do uh, three-day uh, diet records at baseline and then mm -hmm. after completion of phase one and also uh, patients filled out kind of daily um, diet logs. And we actually have a medical student that, that um, collected a lot of that data and analyzed it, but it's not, it's not in a form that I can summarize for you right now, so you'll have to stay tuned uh, on okay. that. I would say that the way that we we approach this is, uh, I would say, in a very medical way in that um, I think it's very difficult for clinicians to um, give diet advice and regulate diet advice, so we wanted to approach food as a type of medicine that could be dispensed and prescribed. Um, and uh, in addition to meal replacements, we made suggestions for adding um, fruit and vegetable serving so that we would match the um, the recommended food pyramid, the U.S. Uh, uh, government food pyramid, uh, in terms of um, daily nutrition and balance of the different food groups. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I love that whole concept of food is medicine, um, and you know, I love that that's how you sort of viewed this um, going into your study. Uh, I was wondering if you think, you know, I, I hear the statistic tossed around a lot that just a 10% reduction in weight can really affect your fertility in a positive way. And I know you, you said that your um, benchmark was 7%, uh, and I know you don't have all of the, the results yet, but, like, initial indications, does it seem that that 7 or 6% that you achieved did make a difference in fertility? I uh, can't say that yet. I don't know. Okay. Um, because okay. we haven't really looked at the, the full data. The um, I mean, But the number that's thrown around in PCOS is, is 5%, um, but the data is not good. There's actually never been a study that's taken women who have tried to get pregnant and looked at the amount of weight loss they've had and seen if, if that's improved their chances. So the recommendation to lose weight is, is basically mm -hmm. common sense because women who weigh less have a greater chance for pregnancy uh, and also have a, a greater chance for a healthy pregnancy because they're less likely to suffer the complications of pregnancy, whether it be pregnancy loss, um, gestational diabetes, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia. Those are all um, much more common in women who are obese. Uh, so uh, consequently, you know, women are advised to lose weight prior to seeking uh, pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I, I was wondering if we could um, talk a little bit about your study that you're doing in China with the acupuncture. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I mean, we've we've had a, a great interest in in um, complementary and alternative medicine, uh, both here in the United States and abroad. And so I'll just I'm just going to throw in a little plug for a study that's wrapping up right now, that's being done by a, a collaborator of mine, and we're helping her, Dr. Uh, Nazia Raja Khan, who has an NIH grant to look at the role of mindfulness in treating PCOS and, and um, also obesity. So this is a, a randomized trial in which um, one group gets conventional advice about dealing with PCOS and, and obesity in weekly meetings, and another group gets uh, instructed in the, in the art of mindfulness, which I would summarize as kind of a contemplative approach to a chronic condition and, and learning how to deal with the, um, the hurdles through, through applying mindfulness to the disorder. Uh, again, I don't have any results in that because the study's still ongoing and we'll probably finish up in 2014. Uh, but again, I think that we have to take a look at, at all available uh, treatment options. 
so that that um, interest in complementary and alternative medicine also um, led led me to uh, China, or at least led China to contact me. I, I guess I have to say from my experience in clinical trials, and their acupuncture is very much a part of um, infertility treatment. And the hypothesis we're pursuing in that is that acupuncture both alone um, or in combination with Western medicine, and the Western medicine we're using is clomiphene, is more likely to lead to pregnancy than either uh, no treatment at all uh, or um, clomiphene alone. So we're trying to establish um, the role of acupuncture both in combination with Western medicine and also kind of head-to-head to Western medicine. So it's, it's a complex trial with, with four treatment groups, each one who's receiving a combination of either active um, or control acupuncture or active or placebo medication. Uh, that study is about halfway recruited. There's actually going to be over a thousand participants in it. Uh, and of course, we in, in clinical trials, uh, we never get our results until the trial's done. That's why, unfortunately, I, I'm not giving you <coughs> what what you and everybody wants to hear is is does it work? Um, I don't know that about about any of the interventions I'm talking about. Only that we're looking at them. Mm-hmm. But but it's great to see that that hopefully there will be some results on, you know, the horizon. So so 2014 for the mindfulness study, and, and what do you think, what do you anticipate results would be completed for the acupuncture study? Acupuncture study, I think, realistically, is going to be 2015 because we do okay. have to, you know, one of the things when we look at live birth, the mindfulness study is not looking at mind birth, so that's why we'll have that a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um Whenever we look at live birth, we have to add an additional nine months um, after pregnancy to see what the outcome is, and, and mm-hmm. so that delays things by about a year. So um, we're hoping to, to wrap up enrollment um, by, um, I'd say, this point in 2014 and then have all the pregnancies accounted for in 2015 for the acupuncture study. Mm-hmm. So let's um, move on to a little bit about your I guess insights in about um lifestyle modification, you know, and when you're treating your patients, you know, what are your recommendations? Well, I, I think that um you know the average body mass index of my patients, um, both in the clinic and in, in studies when we recruit is is a body mass index of thirty five. Mm-hmm. So intensive lifestyle modification or at least um Weight-bearing exercise is often difficult uh, in this group of patients, you know, one, because they haven't necessarily had any experience with it before, and two, is that, is that they are placing a lot of weight on their on their joints, and, and I think you can run into a lot of um, orthopedic uh, impediments and, and also potentially orthopedic uh, injuries. So my approach for, for my patients um, is to focus initially more on uh, caloric restriction and weight loss, and I think that's um, the most important. Uh, uh, certainly, I believe that any sort of exercise they can do that, that's safe and doesn't threaten their joints that they should pursue concurrently. But I think if you look at the data, that that exercise per se, you know, adds very little to, to weight loss, which I think is the most, you know, the most important thing that I tend to track. Okay. And do you um, subscribe to any particular dietary theory um, for women with with PCOS? I I don't prescribe to any um, particularly dietary theory other than the diet that results in the most weight loss is probably the best diet if they're coming in obese. Um, So, you know, 
some of the questions I often get is, um, well, what about if you're normal weight? Does does a diet help? And nobody's ever shown that in PCOS. Um, what about if you're if you're obese? Is is a high protein diet, or is there a specific a, high, a low glycemic index diet that's more beneficial? Uh, and uh, in terms of weight loss, I mean, I think I would just echo what other studies have found: is that you're probably more likely um, to lose weight with a with a low carb, high protein diet, at least initially. But long term, I think any sort of diet that's caloric restricted is going to result in about in the same amount of weight. I think the jury is still out, and I you know I personally believe that a low glycemic index diet is best for women with PCOS who are obese and have metabolic. Um, abnormalities like glucose intolerance and, and dyslipidemia. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I think there's a, a lot of debate in the area about what the best diet for those particular women with metabolic abnormalities is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it ends up um, almost becoming kind of a bio-individual um, situation. You know, what works for one woman isn't necessarily going to work for, for someone else. Um, at least I that's agree. what I find in my practice. Yeah, so I mean, I think you know what what works is is is, and I think the simplest you know sometimes you can get caught up. There's so many things in PCOS that are potentially wrong, and so many variables that people can look at. But I think you should focus on the variables that um, that patients um, come to you for. You know, and and they come to me to get pregnant, to lose weight, or to have less body hair. And so those are the things that I tend to focus mm-hmm. on in my studies and in my practice. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking about getting pregnant, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about increasing fertility and, and you know, what what do you, I guess, what's your f- sort of first-line therapy for women with PCOS that want Well, I mean, I think the, the first-line therapy is, is, is our oral agents, and oral agents that somehow um, affect estrogen metabolism. And there's two two groups of drugs that I think are particularly uh, effective, and I think we're still trying to sort out among those two groups of drugs which is the best one. But the one is is what are called selected estrogen receptor modulators, of which clomiphene citrate is the most commonly used uh, drug in the U.S. And this is a drug that has both um, pro-estrogenic effects and anti-estrogenic effects, and increases ovulation and pregnancy rates in women with PCOS. The second uh, class of drugs are, are aromatase inhibitors, and aromatase is an enzyme that converts androgens into estrogens, and at least by temporarily inhibiting that enzyme and, and lowering estrogen production, uh, you get a rebound in the hormones that the pituitary produces that stimulate the ovary to produce eggs. So, uh, the, and the most commonly used drug in that class of aromatase inhibitors is, is uh, probably letrozole. So I think that those are probably the the first line agents, and I think we're still trying to answer um, which is more effective, uh, which has a lower multiple pregnancy rate, because in women who are obese and have other risk factors for high risk pregnancy, we obviously want to avoid a multiple pregnancy. And then finally, the safety in terms of um, uh, use during uh, pre-pregnancy, uh, pregnancy complications, and and fetal. Uh, and infant uh, congenital anomalies or birth defects uh, are, are still things that we're sorting out also. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, I also wanted to kind of touch a little bit on the um, genetics aspect of PCOS. I know that um, my mother, back in 1970, she had a, a doctor that was probably, you know, ahead of the curve. He, um, She had a wedge recession surgery in order to get pregnant with me. So I know that, you know, there's definitely a genetic um, uh, you know, effect in my family. My sister also has PCOS. Um, and I'm just wondering, I know that you've done um, quite a lot of research around genetics and PCOS. I just was wondering if you could kind of share your thoughts with us. So, um, you know, the bottom line is is that we don't have a, you know, a gene that causes PCOS, although there's lots of um, putative markers that are associated with PCOS, and, and their role in the diagnosis and treatment of PCOS is, is still uncertain in 2013. But what we have learned from studying families is, as much as your own experience uh, echoes, is that is that PCOS clusters in families. So um, if you have a, a if, if a woman is affected, you know, there's a three or four time increased risk for her sisters having uh, PCOS. And we've also uh, found associated uh, traits in brothers and, and uh, fathers. And, you know, those associated traits are um, resistance to insulin, uh, higher rates of lipid abnormalities, uh, obesity also uh, clusters in the families, and, and that's certainly been shown to cluster in, in, in families that don't have PCOS also. But, you know, some of the things that we've learned is, is that if you have PCOS, it's probably a good thing to um, talk to your sisters uh, about it um, and, and definitely recommend screening for them. I think we're still trying to um, decide what it means for the males in the family. And, and, and so at this point, I'm not sure that universal screening of them is necessary for the metabolic abnormalities I talked about. I don't think there's much of a reproductive uh, a phenotype, and by that I mean I'm not sure that their um, body hair or their, their sex hormones are, are that different to merit um, um, screening or counseling about. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, our, our GWAS is kind of entering the final phases, and, and we hope to have a publication out, I'd say, certainly by the end of this year. Um, but one of the things I'm excited about is combining this information uh, that we obtained from GWAS with response to various treatments, you know, much as you alluded to earlier that um, there may not be one treatment that fits all and that, and that each person might have to find the, the treatment that they respond best to and, and that we think that these genetic markers might um, help us in selecting treatments for um, the goals patients want, you know, whether that's to have a baby or to lose weight or mm -hmm. have less body hair. Yeah, it, it just to remind um, listeners that GWAS is the Genome Wide Association Study. Um, I I was I think that's really interesting that you know the the hope of um, I guess gearing treatment around kind of how the the PCOS manifests itself is is interesting. I know that a lot of listeners would be will be interested to know your thoughts on the chances of offspring um, having PCOS. I know I have a little girl that's four and a half, and it's definitely a concern for me. Is there um, have, has there been shown a, a higher risk, or you know, you had said three to four times the chance that your sister would have it? What about a daughter? 
that's a very good question, and, and uh, I'll have to say that we've done one study that, that we published um, several years ago, and we're conducting another one now. So the study we did several years ago studied both um, um, sons and daughters of women with PCOS. And the changes that we found um, were really not evident until the later stages of puberty. So that's really after breast formation and, and right about the time of the first period or expected first period. So this was, these would be girls in the age range of um, 12 to 13 years old. And at that point, we found that they had an exaggerated response to um, glucose challenge, and they made more insulin. You know, and that's something that characterizes PCOS. And we we theorize that may you know that continued exposure may um, bring out the the reproductive abnormalities of PCOS as they go through puberty. But to be honest, there wasn't much difference beyond that between. Um, daughters of women with PCOS and daughters of women without PCOS. And, and we've con we're conducting a second study now that's just focusing on daughters because, as, as I mentioned with the males earlier, we didn't really see that much in the, in the sons of women with PCOS. And, again, that's another trial that's still ongoing, and I don't have the data to tell you yet, but stay mm -hmm. tuned because that's, an, that's um, a question that we're also, that we very much want to answer and, and a question that, um, all our patients ask us. Mm -hmm. If you well, look in the literature from, from what other people have done, there seems to be a similarly very strong risk that um, these girls go on to develop PCOS. But I would say in most studies, it's always less than a 50% chance. Less than 50%. That would um, be what I would Okay. So it's not a given, and, and, and you know, so this, this opens the idea, what should you watch for in your daughter? And then one of the things I say is try to keep your daughter within, you know, within the normal weight for her age um, that you can. You know, you want to avoid um, um, being overweight or obese for your, for your age. So do you think that, like, um, you know, the, the idea of the epigenetics, that your genes can kind of turn on based on certain environmental factors or, you know, if, if girls are, you know, overweight at an early age or maybe exposed to, and there's a lot of talk about BPA and plastics, like, do you, um, have you done any research or do you know of any that, you know, these genes can kind of be switched on um, at an early age? Well, um, I have not done any research in this area, and um I think it's a little bit complex because if you consider that humans have whatever 30,000 genes, mm -hmm. you can imagine how many substances are in the environment, um, probably a lot more than that. And trying to tease out um, what one substance might do versus another, and especially trying to determine the dose exposure, you know, to see if there's any relationship is, is extremely difficult. Uh, so right now I would say, is there an environmental cause for PCOS? I mean... Possibly, but I couldn't point to you the data that, that that's convincing uh, to me. In terms of uh, epigenetics, again, I think you know if you look at it, we're fairly well along the process of um, looking for genetic causes, and, and we haven't really found a clear one. Um, there's probably a lot of genes that are all contributing a little. Or there are probably many genes that are all contributing a little. But there's not one overwhelming gene as we as we thought perhaps going into it. 
And so I think I would apply a similar caution to epigenetics that um, those studies are, are, at least in PCOS, are not even in their infancy, and um, we need a lot more uh, a lot more data in this area before we can draw any conclusions. So um, I just wanted to kind of wrap up it by you know asking you if there's any any other insights or anything else that you'd want to share with with women with PCOS. Well, you know, I think there's um, there's been increased interest in it and, and more studies in recent years. And the way that I would say I've changed is, is one, I think I've seen that, that many of these reproductive abnormalities, at least the irregular periods and the lack of ovulation, seem to get better with age. And if you look at um, countries where they can track health outcomes better, so like the Netherlands and, and Scandinavian countries, um, it appears that many of these women eventually go on and, and have their families. They might not have them at the exact time that they desire them, but with treatment and time, um, many of them complete their families. The second uh, thing is the long-term health outcomes, which um, I think we're still, um, we, 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 haven't, we don't have a good grasp on what they are. So I think there is a tendency towards diabetes, but whether it's the type of diabetes that leads to vascular disease, um, I'm not sure, uh, and I think the jury is still out whether these women actually have an increased rate of, um, of, of cardiovascular events like stroke or heart attacks. Um, uh, I think we uh, we still need some further study, and it's if I from the window of 2013 and compared to the window of the 90s when I started. I'm thinking that their health outcomes are more favorable in the long run than I initially thought. That the data is, as I see it, is is more reassuring to me. So I think that's good news. Um, that um, there might not be this this long term, uh, uh, shorter life hanging over these women. Wow, well, what a great way to end this call on such a positive note. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Legro, for for spending this. Um, last half hour with me and sharing um, all of your knowledge. I know that it's going to be definitely very well received. Well, well, thank you. And, it, and it's it's a disorder where you have to unthink a lot of things that you think, and and you learn every day from your studies and from your patients. So um, stay tuned. I, I, I uh, the patients are the ones I try to answer their questions um, because most of them I can't. Uh, so our studies are designed to to answer their questions, and ultimately, I hope to help them. Well, I, I know you are, and, and thanks again for your time. 